Welcome to the Finding Refuge podcast. My name is Michelle Cassandra Johnson. I am an author, yoga teacher, healer, social worker, dismantling racism trainer, activist, and grief worker. This podcast emerged from work based in the exploration of collective grief and liberation. It exists to remind us about all the ways we can find refuge during unsettling and uncertain times and to remind us about the resilience and joy that comes from allowing ourselves to find refuge. Welcome back to the podcast, friends. I hope you enjoyed season one, and I am very excited about season two. Thank you to all the listeners, the folks who have shared Finding Refuge with their friends and beloveds, the people who agreed to be on the podcast during the first season, and the amazing folks who've agreed to be on season two. I am excited for us to deepen our understanding of what it means to find refuge and to share more voices and experiences with you. I'm very excited about this first episode of season two. I interviewed Onika Mays. Onika and I have actually never met in person, but we've been following each other on social media for quite some time, and we've been in each other's realms for quite a while as well. Let me tell you a little bit about Onika. Onika Mays transitioned to yoga and meditation from a 20-year career in corporate retail leadership over 10 years ago. Onika used that experience to support social justice nonprofits and teach meditation and yoga inside jails. Today, she is the first mindfulness coach at Rikers Island Correctional Facility. At Rikers, she works one-on-one with community members in a therapeutic medical setting. She believes that our justice system needs to focus on transformation and restoration rather than punishment. This idea of liberation and compassion is woven into her work whether it's in a jail or teaching meditation in a corporate environment. She believes that meditation, movement, and mindfulness practices can forge a path to freedom. Power for the people. Enjoy this episode. Hi, Onika. It's good to see you. Hi, Michelle. I'm so happy to be here and share space with you. Me too. It's nice to meet you. I realize we've never met before. Yes, we have. I've been following you forever, and I'm just so grateful that you're a presence on this planet. So um, I, I have been a fan, and I'm just thrilled to be here with you today. Thank you. Thank you. I feel the same way about you. So thanks for saying yes. And I would love for you to share some about who you are, however you want to answer the question. Oh, who am I right now? I think is probably the great question. Um, right now, I am a meditation teacher. Uh, I'm a yoga teacher, but haven't been teaching much lately. Uh, after a career in retail, I worked in retail for almost two decades before I started mm-hmm. teaching meditation and yoga. And I've been doing that for about a decade. Um, and I would say about 10 years ago, I kind of felt myself um, really unsatisfied with my life, even though materially things look great. So I started going to yoga again and started teaching. And I would say about three years into my teaching, I wanted to serve. 
because I felt really fortunate that as a yoga teacher, I started teaching a lot, which I know doesn't always happen for teachers. So I started volunteering at Rikers Island Correctional Facility, which is a jail in New York. Mm -hmm. And um, that from the moment that I walked in, it sort of turned into a calling that I did not expect. Like if you had come up to me 15 years ago and said that you're going to be teaching meditation and mindfulness practices to folks who are incarcerated, I probably would have laughed at you. Um, and, and I come from activists. My grandfather was an activist and my grandmother and my parents are politically active, but it was not something that I, I, I think I would have charted for myself. But once I started teaching um, on Rikers Island, things really shifted for me. And about three years ago, um, I was asked if I wanted to work at the island full time, teaching folks one-on-one -on -one mindfulness practices. So that's what I've been doing a lot of. And um, it's, been, it's been quite a journey and really powerful. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm grateful for the experience and grateful for what it, I think it sort of reawakened in me um, about where we are uh, as a society um, and ways that I can kind of just show up, um, you know, as myself, as I do my own work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you for, for the work you do and um, the calling you received and the way you responded to it. And I'm curious to know um, if you're, if you're willing to share some of the lessons that you've learned through this work on Rikers Island with folks mm -hmm. who are incarcerated, um, what teachings have you received from the work? Yeah, I think the biggest teaching is um, my ability to deal with um, conflicting emotions um, at any given moment. You know, when I first started um, this journey of mindfulness or yoga or, or you know, whatever you want to call it, it was really about sort of unpacking my own stuff and my working through my own trauma. And I spent a lot of years in therapy and that was really helpful. But when I first started teaching yoga and mindfulness, it was, it was really me focused and not in sort of an individualistic way, but, but more how can I sort of operate with the world? And, and, it, and it made a lot of sense. But then when you go into this environment that is so oppressive, and violent. I had these views of officers are this way, people who are incarcerated are this way. And when I first started volunteering, I like, I swear, I thought I was like this warrior going in to do this work. And it was like us against the system and the people who are working there. And, and quite quickly, um, I started to meet some officers who were like good people. And that really, um, stirred up a lot in me that I was not prepared to deal with. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. If I can't put you in this box, am I putting myself in a box that I didn't realize? And so a lot of, uh, I think the biggest lesson is, is dealing with that gray, uh, you know, daily, whether it's the gray of working inside such a, an impressive environment and also the, the survivor guilt that I have daily of going inside and learning to, to deal with that sense of discomfort because it doesn't go away and it doesn't change. And I'm glad it doesn't because I think the day that it does change is probably the day that I need to stop doing the work. Um, but that, that, constant, that constant pull of wanting to be there and, and wondering if I'm holding up systems of oppression by being there and participating. So that's been the biggest lesson. And it's one that I, I think has really been helpful 
um, as we're all sort of navigating what's going on with the world, that's been very helpful for me to, to let go of some of that tightness around what, what I think is true um, versus what, what I'm feeling inside and, and how can I show up in the face of, of things that feel really uncomfortable and gray and, and changing some of my perceptions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You, you mentioned the survivor's guilt and I'm curious to know and how it doesn't go away and actually how that discomfort is a teaching and, and once that's not present, perhaps it means you don't need to be engaging in this work in the same way, right? That you're not as awake to what's going on. And, and I'm wondering how you respond to the survivor's guilt. Like, how do you, because I imagine many people are perhaps feeling that now mm -hmm. for different reasons. Absolutely. Um, and I'm curious to know how you respond to that within yourself and take care of yourself as you're holding that survivor's guilt. Um, now I'm really conscious of it. And whether it's a, a sitting practice, I, I think the, the ways that I manage it differ um, from day to day. I, I took a real prescriptive approach at first that I would meditate or, you know, I would meditate would be the big thing that I would do, but sometimes that wasn't enough. And, and I still was feeling this, this, this really sense of despair that I, I couldn't feel comfortable holding. Um, so sometimes it's movement, uh, sometimes it's writing, um, a lot of times it's, it's checking in with folks who also do similar work, if they can hold space for me. So relying on community has been a big part of that. And, mm -hmm. and really being tender with myself when I'm having these feelings and just acknowledging like it, it makes perfect sense that I would feel this way. Um, and, and I think that's been helpful as I, as I work with folks who are also, when, they're, when, when you're incarcerated, you live in a state of gray. I work in a jail versus a prison, so it, things are very up in the air for people who are in jail because um, they haven't been convicted of a crime and they don't know where they're going or they don't know, you know um, what the next day is going to bring. So um, and, in some ways being in, in the gray and having this sense of despair um, allows me to show up, I think, real authentically with folks um, and, and let things be there. Um, allowing myself to find ways in any given moment that feel that feel in alignment is really important and not attaching to one way that I need to to manage, you know, to manage what I'm feeling um, is so important. This, this uh, non-attachment um, with compassion, right? I always like to add that because I think when non-attachment can be like dissociation, yeah. <laughs> but, but being but being compassionate and at the same time not having such a tight grip on things leaves me a lot of room to to be comfortable on being uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What you just named, um, well, first I love the gray um, and being in that space and holding many truths at one time, and it's not easy. It's just a I'm drawn to that kind of experience and, and practice because life is that I feel like, and what you just mentioned about not, it is right. It's like, totally. we don't know what's going to happen. So like, and we think it's something, it's just like, this is life. This is uh -huh. how it actually works. Not one way or the other. Yep. And it's, it's connected to non-attachment and compassion. And when you talked about these things, I was thinking about the last year and a half mm -hmm. and, um, not just COVID, but all the things that illuminated and then all of the things that came up while COVID was happening in our mm -hmm. lives. And I feel like um, 
non-attachment, we were being called into recognizing what we have been attached to and also losing so much at the same time. And um, I think COVID asked a question and the pandemic of white supremacy, of course, did about how we wanna be with one another. Are we gonna be compassionate? Are we gonna hold one another's hearts? Are we gonna hold tenderness, right? Are we gonna allow ourselves to be tender? And so I'm, I'm curious to know how the last year has been or year and a half has been for you. Like, um, how is this non-attachment and compassion a practice around this deep end or what have you noticed? Mm -hmm. uh, because I just don't remember a time like this in my life. Oh, you know, when I, um, right before the pandemic, I had actually just come back like in January of, of 2019, I just come back from Costa Rica um, after shooting a TV show there. And that was off of the heels of my, my father died in um, September of 2019. So I was still kind of in the throes of grief when I went to Costa Rica and then came back and was sort of settling in, into the grief and navigating this new relationship that I was gonna have with my dad. And then we sort of went into the pandemic. Um, and that, that with, with the work that I do on top of that, you know, when, when you go, that making that adjustment of, of being at Rikers five days a week, and then suddenly that was pulled away. Um, I, I, I felt a lot of fear, I would say, for the first six months for so many people who, who were still going in, right, whether it was healthcare workers and, and officers who I'd become friendly with. And then, of course, all of the people who, who are still locked up and, and dealing with the pandemic. And, and again, that survivor guilt came up like I was sent home to be safe. And yet people who I care deeply about. Um, were still inside and wondering if they were okay and not having a lot of access. There wasn't a lot of information coming out. So that sense of terror and dread and, and then realizing what a break I needed. You know, I see about 10, I sit with about 10 people a day, um, five days a week. And so the break that my body kind of broke down a bit and I realized that I hadn't sort of been embodying a lot of the practices that I'd been teaching as well as I thought I had. Um, just because of the crash that happened at the top of the pandemic. So, so I was navigating so many different, so many different truths, whether it was my own, like feeling wonderful that I had a chance to rest and then feeling guilty about the chance that I had to rest and then navigating, you know, grief that I was still dealing with. Um, and, and a lot of gratitude over the ways that I was able to connect with people um, while, while being home. Um, spending time with my partner um, was 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 such a gift. Um, eventually, we had, we had a little run. <laughs> yeah, that's the whole thing. <laughs> if she were outside, she's probably laughing right now because you know, like, we live together now, but we hadn't at the top of the pandemic. So you know that that adjustment period um, was something. And then you know, so there there were so many there were so many different things. Like there were hours where I would feel great. And then I'm curled up on the sofa crying and then, you know, masking up to go on a walk with my dog and just, and, and just really feeling a sense of, I don't know what is going to happen tomorrow. You know, here in New York, where the virus was really bad at the top of the pandemic and that constant hearing of sirens and feeling so triggered, I was brought back to 9-11 because I was here for 9-11 and that sense of dread of just what, what is actually going on and, and feeling very untethered um, 
for a long time and then starting to settle. Um, mm-hmm. And then feeling a little um, put upon when I went back to work, right? Like I started to adjust and then feeling bad about feeling bad about going back to work. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The layers and layers. The, of- the layers and the layers and the layers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. not, you know, I, I am comfortable dealing with gray, but it is not something that is innately within me. Like I, I was an, a big either or person, which is why mindfulness um, is such a struggle for me. I think probably that's probably why I teach it because it is such a struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, this this whole navigating of gray. I, I really, especially you know, working in retail and in a very um, fast environment, I, I was a very either or person. I liked to know what we were going to do so I could come up with a plan. Um, and then that, that plan didn't work. I come up with this plan, um, but that is not the way that 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 life is. A and B. It's definitely not the way. It's not the world that I even navigate as as a mindfulness teacher. Um, right. And yet I've been doing it now for a decade, and I absolutely love it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. What you're you're naming about practice and teaching what we need. I mean, most of the time that is what what is happening for people, right? Offering something that we need. I'm, I'm curious to know, and you described the last year and, the, and your experience and, and where you've been and um, how has your practice changed? Like, what have you noticed? What's shifted in your mindfulness practice, your meditation practice, or however you think about practice actually? I've, I've become even softer than I thought I was. Um, when I first started teaching, actually, when I first decided I was going to to teach yoga or or began to think about it, I was at a hot yoga class, um, in Manhattan and, um, we were in chair pose and and I don't practice hot yoga anymore, but at the time I just, I couldn't get enough of it. So I'm in this room with like 70 people in Manhattan and we are, you know, we are inches apart. Um, the thought of it now sort of skews me out, but like there's just sweat flying and, you know, it, it's hot and I'm miserable and excited at the same time and exhilarated. I'm sitting in chair pose and a teacher says you can be comfortable or you can change, but you kind of can't do both at the same time. And I started crying. I had like this, like eat, pray, love moment, like tears just started streaming down my face. I sat down on the ground in class and just started weeping. And I knew nothing would be the same. I didn't know what was going to happen, but I knew something in me had just broken. And now I didn't know what was going to go on. I got in my car, drove down to South Carolina to my parents' house and was like, I don't know what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. And I'm 40, but I don't want to do my job anymore. And whoa, what is going to happen? And so I found myself really softening to, you know, what was going to come next. And I felt that, I was so much more tender and vulnerable with myself when I first started teaching and wrote a blog post, you know, like a couple of years later as like an open letter to this teacher. I didn't know she'd see it, but she saw it and she responded and said that, you know, I saw that shift in you and it's a beautiful thing. And so with the pandemic, I, there's always another layer of softness. And, you know, to your point of never being in a time like this before, you know, you find yourself adjusting. 
And I realized in some ways, right, you get into these habitual patterns of the way that you think you are and the way that you, you navigate your practice and, and, and this sort of new space of, of fear and terror, despair, and realizing that I needed some rest, I really allowed myself to rest. And on some days that meant like just laying on the sofa and reading and, and being so surprised at myself for not feeling um, guilty. And that was a, a revelation for me. And I, and I allowed myself to, to be really curious about that. And I think that's where things really started to shift and I be, I've become even softer. Um, and, and then navigating and being softer on the fact when, when that trigger of needing to do more, needing to produce, or how am I going to show up, or, or should I be working more, or speaking more, or, or what's my latest project going to be, even when that comes up, still letting myself be softer on that. And that is a real shift, and that's a real change. It was a hardcore asana practitioner, you know, 90 minutes a day, at least six days a week. Um, and being really sore and still going the next day when I probably could have used some rest instead. And now I just let myself see like, wh what do you want to do today? Is it, a, you know, is it a spin ride? Is it asana? Um, is it just like time with my partner? You know, what, mm -hmm. what does it look like? So it's, that has been such a shift and a real gift. Um, yeah, a real gift. Yeah, and being able to listen to what you need mm -hmm. right and then respond accordingly yeah <laughs> instead of hearing it and being like I'm not gonna listen to that I, but listening and responding and like honoring what your spirit or what your body might need yeah um, and you know it can for me as a teacher um and I think this probably comes from feeling a lot of pressure I, I grew up um as usually one of the only black kids um, in the classroom and always feeling like I had to prove myself and know more. And that sense of having to always perform or know the most in the room um, and let myself let go of a little bit of that when I started teaching mindfulness and yoga. But it, it was still there, right? It, it was still there. And even if I wasn't speaking to it, um, I let it sort of sit on my shoulder. And you know, I think the pandemic even allowed me more like you are not an expert in this shit that's going on right now because you've never even dealt with it. So let yourself just sit, let yourself just be tender because this is new. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that. The, the softening and the tenderness that you're speaking of. And um, I, I want to ask you, you mentioned the, the TV show that you were at the end of 2019, you were coming mm -hmm. back from Costa Rica. Um, Lost Resort, which I watched all of them when they came out. A friend, my friend Janine told me about the show and I watched mm -hmm. them. And the softness and tenderness, of course, I don't know what that experience is like, but from watching it, the mm -hmm. softness and tenderness is what I witnessed you invite people into mm -hmm. over and over. And I'm, I'm curious to know if you want to talk about that experience, what made you decide to do that? Um, um, and be a, one of the healers that was present there. And, and how was that experience for you? Because again, I was viewing it. So I don't really yeah. know what it was like. It was, I did, I think I decided to do it quite frankly on a, a whim. <laughs> and that is how I find a lot of things. Some of the best things that have come up in my life where I just say yes. And then 
figure the rest out later. Um, someone just, a casting director reached out to me through Instagram. And at first I had a, a half of a second thinking, is this real or is this just, you know, one of those scams? Um, and then a month later found myself on a plane going to Costa Rica. And, and I don't think I realized how big the show actually was going to be or how big of a production it was, it was going mm -hmm. to be until I, we, we sort of shot the first day on the beach and there were like 16 cameras. And I was like, oh, this is a really big deal. And I had a moment of terror because I sort of leapt first and asking questions after. It was a very powerful experience. Um, and, you know, obviously it's TV. So, so much of actually what happened, I don't think got, got shown um, and maybe edit, ended up on, on the, the metaphorical uh, floor. Um, mm -hmm. But it was, it was really a life-changing experience. And I, I think because part of me was going through such a deep grief, right? I, I went in November, my father had died in September. So I was really in the throes of dealing with the loss of my father, which was an unexpected. Um, so, so that was happening. And then to, to meet some, all of the incredible people who are on the show and not just the people who are the cast, but, but the crew mm -hmm. who were bearing witness to a really powerful retreat. We were there for three weeks and just seeing the crew respond um, to, to the work that we were doing. I, I did one-on-ones with just about everybody there. Um, and, and that was really powerful. And there was actually not a lot of interference, right? In a lot of reality shows you hear about, you know, the crews interfering or, or sort of trying to create, create a story, but, but that didn't happen. And, and that was actually really lovely. I think um, um, the healers, and, and I don't like that word, but the healers um, were, we were all a little worried about, are we gonna look foolish or are they going to really show the work that we do? Um, mm -hmm. And, and, you know, in conversations, we all kind of just decided, well, let's just do what we do. And, and we can't really control how, how things end up when, when it, when it comes on. So mm -hmm. it was powerful. I still talk to just about everybody from the show regularly. Wow. Um, yeah. I was just actually talking to Becca, who was the pastor on the show um, mm -hmm. yesterday. So um, it was, it was lovely. It was really lovely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you for sharing some about your process of saying yes to that <laughs> and then arriving and being like, what did I say yes to? I know it's, you know, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't, and you know, honestly, I do believe in that leap. Sometimes there's, there's that sacral, like there was this sacral thing just to say yes. Like something in me said, say yes to this. So I just mm -hmm. said yes. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think I've learned to just trust that initial response that I have, like inside when I feel something and I really feel it in my sacral center. Like I feel a yes or a no. And when I feel that yes or no, just learning to honor that in the moment um, has been really soul shifting. And when I feel, and I don't know, I give myself a pause until mm -hmm. there is some clarity. Mm -hmm. It's an important practice. Yeah. To come to, because I feel like, you know, in so many ways, many of us are taught not to listen to mm -hmm. what the body's saying or what our energy centers, our chakras are saying, or, um, what our intuition is offering. <laughs> us at the time so this practice of of a yes or no or if it's an i don't know waiting 
right? Until you get more information. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just such a powerful, powerful practice. It really is. And, and that's actually one of the things um, at Rikers, I, I talk a lot about being able to, to listen to what's happening inside your body and, and make a choice, right? I think liberation is in the choosing. Mm -hmm. um, and there's so few choices that happen for folks who are incarcerated. And so when folks come to see me, it's, it's voluntary, it's, it's not mandatory. And sometimes our, uh, like a session is actually just mindful conversation. Sometimes it's pranayama, sometimes it's asana. Um, sometimes it's just sitting silently. And um, there's, there's room for folks to say no, um, which I think is so important to just say, no, I, I don't wanna do this today. Um, and, and that, especially in that environment, right. um, is, is so incredibly important, but I think it's a universal theme and a universal lesson that we are, I, I think I was definitely um, raised at a, a lot of different levels. I, don't, I wouldn't say just with my family, but just as, as a, a, a black queer woman to, to, to show up and, and to have to do things. Mm -hmm. um, and and that, that forcing myself to do things, even when it didn't feel like it was in my best interest. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, listening to the, the way you bring this practice into your work um, on, on Rikers Island um, is profound because of the context. It's profound as a practice, but profound because of the context. And mm -hmm. it may be the only time during the day when um, folks you're working with feel like they have some agency. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. And before I started doing the work, I didn't I couldn't appreciate how much the institution itself is really a living being. It, it really is something to contend with, like holding space for people who tell you things that are, that are tragic and, and terrible is, is work that I expected to do and to hold. And I was prepared for that. I was ill prepared for a lot of the other stuff that surrounds the work that I get to do. Um, whether it's a lot of waiting, there's a lot of hurry up and wait in jail. There's a lot of swallowing my own feelings and words that I have to do at certain times when I wanna speak up or say something or I'm irritated and have to hide it um, because of the environment or folks who are not friendly. And, and that was a lot that I, I wasn't as prepared to deal with and had to really navigate that. And that gets me, that gets me tired. That's, that's where I get exhausted. Um, and, and that's where I actually allowed myself to say no to things as well, where I use my sick days, I use my vacation days, which were not things that I did in, in, you know, in my previous career. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'd allow vacation days to sort of slip by or that moment when I, I didn't feel well, I'd go to work anyway. Um, but but I have learned that if I am not taking care of myself, um, I'm no good to myself. And, and because I do believe that self-care is collective care, right? I, I need to, I, I need to mirror, I, I need to model that for myself mm -hmm. if I'm going to be talking about it. And um, mm -hmm. I do think it is, a, it is a moment in the day when, when people can just come into my office. I have an office that's, that's in like this clinic that's actually fairly quiet and it's as safe as I can make it, right? It can't be a completely safe space just because of the environment, but it is quieter. And so I do even have people who don't 
see me regularly, even come in and like pop in for a second. Um, mm -hmm. And I think because, you know, words got out that, you know, it's, it's a quiet place. So, so yeah. you can go there. Yeah. I mean, that's a, you know, the podcast is finding refuge and I'm really struck by how the space you are in there and have created and, and what you've named about the way you work is a point of refuge. Oh, absolutely. I, people have used that exact phrase um, when they've come inside that, that is, it is a refuge. Um, mm -hmm. And it's, I'm grateful to be able to create a space like that for folks who are incarcerated and officers who stop by just to, to say hi or breathe. There's always a comment that officers walk by and, and they're like, wow, it's, it's so calm in here. Like this feels really good. And I do aromatherapy with folks too. It, mm -hmm. Jail smells so terrible. So um, to be able to take some, some essential oil with you after, after a session to bring it with you, people come by and um, they've all call it now smell good. <laughs> Can I get some smell good? It cracks me up every single time. It's funny. Yeah. <laughs> and so I have officers coming by. Yo, can I get a little smell good? It's hilarious. It's hilarious. <laughs> it is. You're doing some magic there. Yeah. You know, sometimes I just want to walk through all the halls, spraying essential oil and saging and smudging the whole place. And mm -hmm. oh, yeah. Clearing what needs to be cleared. Exactly. Sure. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I um you had a birthday recently I right? did I did 50 yeah happy birthday happy thank belated so you. was it um are you a Gemini or Taurus, Taurus? I'm right, on right the at the end yeah mm -hmm. I thought so I remember the day and I was like oh I so Taurus um so I'm I'm curious to know um what you are um looking forward to or, or conjuring as you begin this next trip around the sun? Oh, 50, 50 feels really amazing. Um, I struggled with a lot of mental illness in my twenties and thirties. And so I, for a long time, I actually didn't even think I'd make it to 50. And so to be able to, to be at 50, um, and I, I got vaccinated and I, and I ha was with some friends and family who were also vaccinated. And that just felt so incredible because when I turned 49, you know, I did like a, a birthday party on Zoom. And so to be able to gather in person on such a milestone um, felt like a gift. And turning 50 felt like I was really stepping into myself. Um, it feels, it feels really grand. And I feel like I'm stepping into this, this auntie being that I think in my thirties, it, it seems so far away. And mm -hmm. it seemed like I, I wouldn't feel the way that I feel now, but it, it's, it's so many new beginnings. And there's some projects that I've been working on that I am thrilled to, uh, I'll be able to share more about them and, and like probably the next year or so, but allowing myself just to try new things and to do some things that I sort of talked about. I've been doing a lot more writing lately, which I sort of always talked about, but didn't really embrace. And I think with my dad dying, I realized, oh, wow, this is, this is the only time in this body that I'm going to be here. So why don't I make the most of it? 
Um, so I'm excited, I'm excited about some writing projects that I have happening. Um, mm -hmm. and truly, truly being able to enjoy myself in ways that I don't think I allowed myself to before that. I just feel very present with everything that's happening, whether it's messy or joyful and, and being able to just put my arms around all of that feels incredible. My sister, um, is pregnant. And so I, I have a, a niece that's coming, that's coming in August. And, and I'm really looking forward to, to spending time with her. And I have a nephew who's two and spending time with him, um, spending time with my mother over these past few years, since my dad died has also been a gift. And to be able to talk to her so much more over this past year and a half, like being home was really lovely and, and looking forward to doing more of that. Um, yeah, it, it's, it really, I feel younger in some ways. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, mm -hmm. I, I feel younger and excited um, and don't feel, I know age is just a number, but I, I'm really proud that I'm 50, you know, and that, I, that a half a century. And yeah. Yeah. there's a lot of wisdom I earned that, I, that, I'm, I'm, that I'm very proud of. Um, and excited for what's next and, and allowing myself to be open and curious. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love the, well, first, I'm happy you're here, right? <laughs> I know you said you, you didn't know if you would make it yeah. to 50 yeah. um, when you were in your 20s and 30s. And so I'm glad you're, you're here with Thanks. us and, and that you are, um, it sounds like joyful about, um, being here and being present. Yeah. Um, and I know sometimes people have a, a just interesting relationship with aging and, mm -hmm. and we're all aging. Like <laughs> that's the trajectory. That's where we're going people. <laughs> um, and I have a, I um, had a friend who passed away in 2008 and he was 39. And so every year since then, I've been like, I'm happy another birthday is coming and I'm on yeah. the planet, like, because losing someone that age or younger, I know many people have, it's like just appreciating still being here versus like cursing that we're, mm -hmm. we're aging, which is a natural process. Absolutely. So I love the way you talk about it. Yeah. It's, it is something when, and I'm sorry that you lost a friend who, who is so young. It is really something, right. When you, when you lose somebody, when it's not expected, right. When, Versus yeah. if we lose parents when they're older, we know that's going to happen. Um, but it can really, it can really rock your world. I think that was probably the other catalyst that had me sort of change my life. Um, I lost a, a friend right around mm -hmm. 40 and I was just like, okay, this is, this is kind of it. It's not a dress rehearsal. Um, right. Yeah. This is, yeah. This is it. This is where we are. <laughs> yeah. You know? At this, at this time around, right? Like this is it. So that's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I wonder if you, you've mentioned your dad a few times mm -hmm. and um, one, I wonder if you'll share his name with us. His name is Alfred. Alfred. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm also curious to know if there's a teaching Alfred, your dad offered you that you want to share with, with us? Um, yeah. He was, 
he was an incredible man. <laughs> I'm getting a little emotional, but yeah, I think, I think the biggest thing that one of the, actually, I don't know if it was a big lesson, but just being able to chase whatever your dream is. Um, I think I was very fortunate, you know, for, I think for a lot of immigrant kids who are like first generation or for um, a lot of black kids who go to college or their parents have these hopes for them. And, you know, you find yourself focused because you feel like this pressure to be successful, um, you know, in this country. Um, I did not have that kind of pressure. And that was a real blessing that I was this kid growing up in this environment and I had all of these interests that were kind of off the beaten path. And while for a long time I did embrace you know, sort of going a corporate route, it wasn't because I felt pressure to do that. Mm -hmm. um, I think I, I wanted to make my parents proud, but then when I shifted, it was like, you know, my parents were married actually for almost 50 years. My dad died a, a couple of years before their 50th anniversary. But um, when I shifted careers and was like, I don't really know what I want to do. There, there wasn't this doubt. Um, and he said, you know, you'll figure it out. You, you'll figure it out. And, it, and that's okay if you're not quite sure what it's going to be. But make sure that you're doing something you love. And that is something that I think has allowed me to embrace um, at times when you're teaching meditation and yoga at first, it's, you know, mm -hmm. uh, it is very hard to support yourself. And, and you think, should I be doing this? Does this make sense? Because you're caught up in this, this, you know, this capitalistic society and how you're, cause you do have to eat, right? That's the reality in sort of this 3d world, like paying rent and eating and all of these right. things. And yet, and yet wanting to, wanting to, follow your passion and things that you think are really important to you. Um, and, and him telling me to do that, um, even as a kid was, I think, incredibly important and really liberating. Mm -hmm. um, and at a time when I think a lot of my, my peers and, and colleagues from my old career, you know, probably thought I had gone a little crazy. Like when I walked away from a really successful career and to go teach yoga, I know they were like, what, what yeah. These are her prime earning years. Why would she walk away like at, you know, at the top? And so, yeah, really grateful for that. Um, yeah. And for his influence. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I still talk to him every day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Still a very important relationship. Yeah. I can tell just yeah. by seeing your face and, um, the, just based on the way you've brought him into the conversation. I mean, he's yeah. here, so yeah, <laughs> he's here. <laughs> to be clear. And, and I wanted you to call him into this space. Yeah. I could feel that. Yeah. So, yeah. And I, and I'm also really um, appreciative of that. You said I talked to him every day mm -hmm. um, because I feel like many people um, sort of similar to how we conditioned around aging when someone transitions, people are like, they're gone. And actually the relationship just shifts, right? Yes. That's what happens. And you just spoke to that and honored yeah. that you're, you're still in deep relationship with him. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. There is a, a, a Ted radio episode. I think it's called moving forward. And uh, 
a woman who had lost like her husband, a child and her father all within like three weeks, three months, um, talked about how her relationship shifted. Um, and I, I listened to it shortly after he died and it was, um, it was a really powerful experience. And, um, I think also spoke a lot to my own mindfulness journey and my own, my own practice that it's not about moving on or letting things go that happen that I might feel shame or blame about, but simply allowing those things to be there and moving forward, right? Um, and and not, you don't have to let things go. You can let things go that don't serve you, um, mm -hmm. but you can change your relationship with those things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's right, that's right. That's yeah. A, it's a powerful experience and teaching. Yeah, it's a lot of practice. I'm better at it on some days than others. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we are in human bodies. You <laughs> yeah. know. Some days, some days it feels like I have it on lock, and then other days I'm like, yeah, I'm walking away from all of this. This is silly. right. Yeah, <laughs> I, I feel you. I hear you for sure about this. Yeah, that's why it's a practice. Right? It is a practice, you know, and, and I feel that a lot at work. There are some days um, I leave the island, and I think I'm not going back. Like, I'm just not, I, I can't. And then there's some days that I'm like, this is exactly where I'm supposed to be. And right. Yeah. It's, it is what it is on any given day, but mm -hmm. it, it does allow me, I think, to show up authentically, which I think is just so important for, I think for anybody who takes a teacher seat, but especially for me, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. just to, to be who I am and, and whatever, and, and, and authentic in any given moment, even if it's clumsy or awkward, or if I'm not quite sure what I want to say and um, learning to embrace that and embrace my own voice and the way that it's showing up in any given moment, I think is also a function of the, the where I am now in my life and sort yeah. of turning 50, where I'm not censoring what I'm saying or you know, there are these moments when I first started teaching and, you know, where I'm like, oh, am I saying this right? Does this feel right? Am, am I honoring properly? And, and, and that trust that you start to have when you start living in that gray, that it's okay. It's okay. Um, and so often a, a lot of the things I've created in my head around being uncomfortable are, are, are really not so big to the outside world. And it's really just a function of, you know, some old story that I'm living with. Um, mm -hmm. but so important to name and talk about. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it allows people to also feel comfortable talking about those things, which is, which is so important. I think when you become, you know, when you become a teacher to, mm -hmm. to, to be authentic and to be awkward or goofy or, or whatever, you know, however you're showing up in the world. Yeah. What you're saying reminds me of so many of, um, folks who've practiced with me will say, you're, you're human. Like I'll make them, I'll like forget one side if we're moving through asana <laughs> yeah. and completely mess it up or cause I'm just channeling it through anyway. And yes. I'm flowing in some other way then, or I'll like completely mix up my words. And so many people have been like, you're not like, it's great that you're modeling uh -huh. what it is to be human and like awkward and messy and to forget and not be perfect. Yeah. Like, yeah. That's the kind of teacher I want to be. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. I was afraid to be that at first. I really was. And I, I was so uncomfortable to, to, to be, to be myself. I mean, you know, 
I am a little goofy. I am a little awkward. I, I am all of those things outside of teaching. And mm -hmm. so I don't know why I was so eager. Well, I know why, you know, I was so eager just to be like, well, that's not the kind of teacher that I'm going to be. Um, and when I, I started really loving my practice and, and teaching, um, I, I wanted, to, I, I wished I had had these practices when, when, you know, when I had my previous life and I was a district manager for a bookstore company for a really long time. And I wondered what kind of leader would I have been if I had all of these mindfulness practices then, because um, I think I was really hard and demanding mm -hmm. um, and rigid. And what kind of leader could I, could I be with these practices? Mm -hmm. um, and then have to let that go and, and be here, but um, right, yeah, yeah. But it's a good question and prompt for us all to think about the um, how this practice can shape us and shift us and mm -hmm. move us and change us and how we show up, um, and especially as a leader, right? Um, yeah, and and I think you know a lot of time you know on Instagram, you see so many folks who are, who are doing incredible work and, and activists. And um, I really like to talk to folks about that. Like, you don't have to be an activist. Like I'm not an activist. Like I'm a person who does this work. And I think if we all just did a little bit of work, the ripple effect in the world, and I don't want to sound trite, but it could change the world, right? Like if 10 people every single day just decided to commit to sitting for five minutes every day, like things would really shift. And I think for folks, when you have teachers who are, who are so perfect, it seems inaccessible, this idea of mindfulness and, um, and of being connected and authentic and present. It seems so far away. Um, so when you have you know, teachers who are human, it, it makes it that much easier to say, well, I, I can do this. This, right. is, this is something that I can do. It's not just something to watch or for special people, or you know, I have to train in this lineage and all of these things that, that there is power just you know, in an exhale. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Well, I'm wondering if, I one want to thank you for being here and just, I love this conversation. I feel like we could go for another <laughs> hour. Like we're just warming up and flowing and talking. So thank you for sharing space and co-creating this space with me. And, and I'm curious to know if there are things coming up in the late summer, fall that mm. you want people to know about, or if you want folks to be able to connect with you in some way. Mm -hmm. um, and of course that's optional, but I want to make space for you to share. Yeah. Thank you so much. I'm so glad that we had this conversation. It was, it's, yeah, I feel like I could talk to you forever. Um, <laughs> uh, in July, I'm actually co-hosting um, a spiritual citizenship conference with embodied philosophy. Um, five days of some incredible teachers talking about what it means to be a spiritual citizen. And on July 16th, I'm going to be interviewing um, Dr. Cornell West, mm -hmm. which I am so excited about. Mm -hmm. um, the 19 year old Africana studies major in me is like faded yeah. with excitement when, when I heard that. So um, some really powerful conversations around what, what does it mean to show up as a person and how can we do that? Um, and I'll be talking a lot about how 
activism is actually an inside job, right? And, and we should obviously be supporting people who are in the trenches and doing work, but it doesn't mean that you don't have, you know, that, that own um, ability inside yourself to, to be a catalyst for change. Because um, mm -hmm. I think we all have that ability. So that's July 13th through the 18th. And uh, I'm really excited about that. And I, um, I offer a meditation, it's, it's my seva every Monday um, on Zoom, um, mindfulness at 7 p.m. Eastern time that, that people can just hop on. And um, my Dharma talks are usually very loosey-goosey <laughs> and whatever's going on in that moment. I, I teach a lot of metta. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, the metta practice has been absolutely transformational for me um, in softening to myself. And so I, I do a lot of metta, a lot of variations on metta, a lot of visualizations. So um, that is a, a way that folks can, can come and share space with me. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you um, for doing what you do and for being who you are and conjuring and creating magic for us and with us. Um, and thank you so much for being here with me. Thank you. It was really, really a pleasure. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I hope you enjoyed the episode. So, as you all may know, I have a new book out, Finding Refuge, Heart Work for Healing Collective Grief, published by Shambhala Publications. It was published on July 13th, 2021 and can be found anywhere where books are sold. Along with the book, you can join me for some offerings focused on finding refuge and focused on collective grief, ritual, and processing trauma, allowing it to move through so that we can get free. We'll explore the connection between grief and liberation. You can support the podcast Finding Refuge by telling your friends about it and rating it on iTunes. You can support my work in the world by becoming a patron on Patreon. You can find me there as Michelle C. Johnson, Skill in Action. I offer monthly Dharma talks, rituals, meditations, or movement practices. I hope you join me there. Take care. Be well, friends.